Okay, today my guest is Professor Eric Sang. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Eric as a person. Professor Sang is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very, a very quick snapshot. Professor Sang is an AIB fellow. He has served on the editorial boards of most major IB journals, such as JIBS, Journal of International Management, Journal of World Business, and Management International Review, in addition to others, uh, other management journals. He has served as a consulting editor or senior editor at Management and Organization Review and Asia Pacific Journal of Management. His research interests include FDI, strategic alliances, organizational learning, entrepreneurship, philosophical analysis of methodological issues, and his paper with Andrew Inkman, the uh, Social Capital Networks and Knowledge Transfer, won the 2015 AMR Decade Award. He also won the 2014 Best Paper Award from the Journal of Strategic Information Systems, and he is the author of the Philosophy of Management Research. Thank you, Eric, for joining us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. First question, uh, always. Uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? Um, I think I have a few in my mind. Um, in fact, when I apply for, okay, I, 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 uh, I come from a very modest family background. So I was the first to go to college. Uh, I have an elder brother and elder sister. And uh, so I, in, in high school, in fact, I study science subjects. So when I uh, set for the, uh, what, what I call it, A-level exam, the advanced level exam, for all you call the uh, university entrance exam, uh, the subjects that I took were uh, English, uh, physics, chemistry, uh, P1 mathematics and applied mathematics. But when I applied for uh, US Hong Kong, um, so I, I applied for the social science faculty. While the, I, I mean, unlike my classmates who mostly applied for engineering, hmm. the engineering faculty. So because at that time, I, Okay, well, the, one of my dream careers was to become a clinical psychologist. So psychology is in the social science faculty. So I applied for the social science faculty. And uh, so I, I was uh, accepted into the West Hong Kong. Um, and in fact, before that, another career in my mind was being, to be an architect. Okay, because I, I think architecture is a beautiful combination of art and science. And I, I, I mean, I like visual art very much. Uh, I was pretty good at, uh, I mean, art subject uh, in secondary school. And uh, so, so I think architecture seems to be a good fit for my skill set. But uh, so since I, I, I joined uh, US Hong Kong on this faculty of social science, so, so I had to focus on a career art and architecture. And, uh, but once I joined, 
I, I mean, you were Hong Kong in the first year, I think my interest was shifted a little bit to economics. Yeah. So at the end, after I got my um, MBA from the Chinese world, Hong Kong, then I joined HSBC as a, as a corporate banker. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, a very drastic kind of change. Yeah. So Eric, can you remember the first time you realized there was something called international? Uh, can you t- tell the difference between the first moment of awareness between domestic versus international as a child? Uh, it's not, in fact, it's not so much because I, as I told you, I, I come from a very modest background. And uh, at that time, in, I think the case is, although I always study business, um, a couple of business subjects in US Hong Kong, but I think the, my mostly focus on uh, economics and statistics. So my exposure to uh, business, the business discipline was not very strong. So I, I, I but as you know, Hong Kong, uh, is an international city. Mm-hmm. So we, we met foreigners. So when I work uh, in HSBC, so definitely there are managers from, from the UK and uh, uh, I encounter clients. Yeah. From okay. So, so, so that's my exposure to IB, you may say. <laughs> Not much. About uh, choosing scholarship, IB scholarship, being a professor, how did you decide? and your research area specifically for international business, what made you choose the field? Uh, okay, it, it, it's a very long story. Okay, the story is after I joined HSBC. I, okay, in, in fact, at the beginning of uh, my class, okay, for undergrad or PhD, I usually told students that there's nothing, there was nothing wrong with HSBC. It was a caring employer. It gave a lot of opportunities to young executives, but there was something wrong with myself. <laughs> I, I got a that it's not the kind of career that I would like to have for the rest of my life. And, uh, so the, the story is that I, I was a member of the Charter Institute of Bankers in the UK. So as a member, I receive a magazine from the uh, Institute every month. It's a monthly uh, magazine. So they send it to my office in the bank. So one day I received uh, the magazine and then I flipped through the pages. And then I saw uh, one full page job uh, advertisement of uh, Nanyang Technological University. At that time, I think there were only two universities in Singapore. One is NUS, National University of Singapore, the other Nanyang. And uh, so the ad, basically I, I read through the ad and then it didn't require PhD, okay? But it, uh, they require minimum is a master's level qualification. And then I got it because I got MBA from Chinese University of Hong Kong. And preferably they, they want people to have passed the uh, banking diploma myself, the Charter Institute of Bankers which I passed. So, so it seems that I, I was qualified. So I submitted by uh, my, my application and then I, I was hired. So this is how I left the bank and uh, went to Singapore to teach. Be- I think the case is because they had 
a undergrad major in banking. Hmm. I I think they still have. I'm not so sure. So they need the people who have practical banking experience to teach the subject. It's not just from theory, but but I, I some of the subjects are really really very practical. Yeah. So I I was qualified and uh, so I went to Singapore and. Uh, so of course you cannot compare the financial prospect of being a banker versus being a faculty member. I mean, there's no comparison. But money is not everything, okay, on earth. So I I went there and then I realized that it was the kind of career that I would like to have for the, my life. Interesting. In, in order to stay in the career, so I I need to get a PhD. So I went, I went to Cambridge and uh, John Chow was my supervisor. And, and, and you know, uh, well, John is also an AIB fellow that you interviewed previously. Yeah. So at, uh, at that time, I think his interest is on Chinese management, organizational learning, that, that's all. International joint ventures. So basically, um, so I, I try to find something within his domain of research interest. And uh, so my, my dissertation was about uh, Singapore companies, FDI in China, mostly joint ventures. So it's about joint ventures set by Singapore companies with local Chinese companies. Mm-hmm. And so I, my main research question is how or and what did this Singapore companies learn from their joint venturing experience in, in China. So that, that is squarely a uh, IB topic. That's how it started my academic career. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting, hobbies, uh, interests. Uh, okay, so when, when I was young, I, I, I played uh, table tennis. Uh, tennis, uh, squash, uh, badminton. So games with uh, a, a toe or racket. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you may be surprised to hear that when, when I was young in, in, uh, in high school or secondary school, I, I was a, uh, I engaged in, uh, in, in sprint running. Okay, so 100 meters, 200 meters. Yeah, I, I think, I, okay, I, I think I was the fastest one in my class, okay, starting from primary school to high school. Okay, so you, you talk about a class of about 40 kids, okay, maybe 20 uh, were boys. So I, I was the fastest one, as far as I can recall. So it seems that I'm a bit of that sort of talent. So. Interesting. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. for the sake of okay, time. Okay, there's uh, been competition, 100 meters, 200 meters, 100, four by 100 meters relay, you know. Uh, so I enjoy watching that sort of uh, competition very much in the Olympics. And uh, so that's more on the sports side. And I, I learned watercolor uh, painting. Yeah. Uh, so in, in fact, in my house, I, uh, there were two water color paintings done by me. Wow, interesting. In, in my house. Yeah, so as I, as I told you, I, I, I like visual art very much. So I love watercolor color painting, but I, I, 
But unfortunately, after my kids were born, <laughs> I, I started that hobby. I think I should pick it up yeah, now. Yeah, I, I really enjoy uh, what current painting and also going to art gallery and, and so on. Yeah, so, so this, and, and okay, and another is the travel. I, I love traveling. Mm. So I think COVID-19, <laughs> a big punishment for me <laughs> because I have to stop traveling around the world for almost. Well, the next conference is going to be in person, hopefully. Um, yeah, ho hopefully, no, I, I hate uh, online uh, conferences. Uh, I, I go to the conference physically and meet the person face to face, you know, that's our interaction. Uh, having a cup of coffee, you know, that, that, that's all impressions that you, you told, Actually, told your advisor said exactly the same sentence, if I remember correctly. I think he said exactly the same sentence about human touch uh, that he yeah, is yeah. missing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, it's not something that you can compensate through that's all online seminars, online conference. You don't have that, no. Sure. The experience, sure. sit down with endless scholar, you no. Know, at Starbucks, you know, having a cup of coffee, chit chat, you know, uh, making jokes, that sort of thing, you know. And, and also, I, I, I told my dean, so I hate teaching online. I really hate teaching online because, say, if in the classroom, uh, say, I, I make a joke, then I, I, I could look at students' uh, reaction to my joke. Okay, if <laughs> it's enough, then, okay, next time I have to change it to another joke. <laughs> 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 but for online teaching, you don't have that sort of. Uh, true, true. Uh, I mean, kind of chat, you know, students' reaction. True. So, uh, for, for the sake of time, I'll switch to, to research. Uh, you, you mentioned about your research in general terms, but about um, omitted variables, omitted areas, contexts uh, in IB research, looking uh, back, uh, what are some of the areas that are neglected that we need to uh, cover more? more of in, uh, in IB research? I, I think the COVID-19 teaches uh, IB researchers basically is a big lesson. Uh, so we talk about environmental shocks. So the pandemic itself is a shock because uh, companies have to immediately adjust their more operation. So a lot of them have to change to uh, online uh, meetings and uh, the employee can't come to the office. And uh, so they, I mean, for retail industry, they may have to close their store or restaurants or whatever. And uh, so for the airlines, uh, they, they have to change their flight schedules. And uh, so, so this is a very important environmental shock that companies have to deal with, whether they are domestic companies or MMCs, and, and that, I think that's also led to uh, organizational learning. So companies have to learn how to deal with this sort of uh, certain environmental shock. And uh, I think it's interesting to see how companies adjust and learn, and also to see how they store the knowledge of learning in their company. So, in case this uh, pandemic is over, maybe after a few years, there another 
kind of a pandemic or whatever, then there's another shock. Then it's interesting to see how far companies can learn from the current shock to deal better with a future shock. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing is, if you talk about IP, I think, I think uh, you have read or most of have read that uh, there's a shock in terms of a global value chain. You see, so because quite a lot of companies, they focus their production activities, say in China, and the pandemic started in China. So that seriously affected their production activities because most of the activities uh, are in China. Okay. So because of that, I, I, I mean, I read the news, I keep track of the news. Uh, seem, it seems that some company like Samsung, they have learned that maybe they have to diversify more in terms of their production activities. Let's tie, let's, let's tie this to the next five to 10 years of the field. Uh, yeah, what, yeah. Do you, what do you see as the big research questions, um, a, a, a good dissertation topic uh, for junior faculty? Um, <laughs> what's the question that they should be interested in that they should be looking into? Uh, well, I, I can talk from... Uh, from from my uh, basic research area like organizational learning, so I think the adjustment of global value chain. Uh, mm-hmm. I published a review paper in Chips recently about global value chain with uh, two scholars. So, so basically, this is I think this will become a important topic, and as time passes, you see more MMCs adjusting their global value chains. Okay. I think they try to be in some buffer somewhere. So in case this sort of ex- uh, environmental shock happens, then I think they is better, then they will be in a better position to deal with it. Yeah, so I believe they will try not only to diversify, but to be in some sort of buffer in the global value chain. Okay. So the shock, and and this is talking about uh, adjustment, learning, not sharing. So it, it, it itself is a big topic. Yeah, research on. So I think this should be a fruitful kind of research area that you have practical implications for MMCs. Yeah. In fact, related to that is you you if you picture of the uh, international in, politics. Uh, now it seems that China has some sort of a conflict with certain Western countries, including US. And, and that, okay, I think that is not as dramatic as the pandemic, but MMCs will feel the need to deal or to hedge this sort of a political risk. Okay, so it's not just talk about production, but also sales. Okay, so if a company uh, sells a very substantial percentage of its products in China, and then the company, I mean the MMC's home country happens to have some sort of political conflict with China, then the MMC will be in serious trouble. Yeah, in terms, 
in terms of sales. So, so I think MCs, I believe now there is the TMT will, or is looking into this sort of political with how to hatch it. Yeah. Again, this is a big uh, topic that IP researchers may uh, be interested yeah, to look into it and uh, see what suggestions that they can give to MMCs and uh, yeah, hatching the political risk. What, what do you see as a fruitful area to when we consider the Chinese investments in Africa, uh, the Belt and Road initiatives and uh, for state-owned enterprises or for private enterprises, uh, how does it uh, relate to uh, the knowledge literature, international knowledge uh, transfer literature uh, for the Chinese activities in Africa, in your opinion? Well, I, I think that's an interesting topic. Um, I have read something about that. So I think Chinese companies have been very successful in transferring their technology to less developed countries like those in uh, Africa or small countries along the one bell, one vote uh, uh, initiative. And uh, I think the Chinese are successful in terms of producing a reasonably good quality kind of project, like building a road or a dam and uh, with very low cost, which Western companies cannot compete because I think their cost is much higher. Although the quality may be a little bit better. Mm-hmm. In that sense, I think Chinese companies are very successful. And, and as far as I know, most of these Chinese companies are in fact state-owned enterprises. Very few of them are private companies. So they have to support from the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Cost-wise, they, I, I mean that they, they may be some sort of subsidy from Chinese government. I, I really don't know the details. Uh, but in any case, I think they, they have done a good job in, in that aspect, producing a reasonably good quality kind of a product uh, with a pretty low cost. And uh, I, I believe something that Western companies may, may be able to, to learn from the Chinese. Yeah. They are not, I don't think they are using the most advanced technologies, but they are using a proven technology, okay, in China. I, I think China, the, the advantage is because it's a huge country. So they can test a technology inside China before they use it overseas. And then they improve on the technology, yeah, to make it more reliable, to lower the cost, and then they export the technology to these less developed countries. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you. Now, uh, about advice portion, uh, what was the best advice you received from your advisor when you, you were going through the PhD program and starting uh, your own career? So uh, John was a great mentor. Um, I think what I learned from me is, I, I always find he, he, he had a passion in his research. Okay, I think even now he, he has retired from, uh, from University of Birmingham and uh, I, 
he he published a book recently, so I purchased copy. Uh, so so basically, what I learned from me is the passion, this career to do research, and and of course he, uh, he's a great writer. You know, he 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 can write very fast, which is something that I cannot <laughs> I I cannot do. And and his argument, he he argues very well. I mean, he he got a, a training in sociology for undergrad in Cambridge. That that that's what I recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think he looked at things from a more macro, uh, sociological kind of perspective, not so micro. Yeah, and and he he puts forward very convincing argument. Yeah, of course he 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 was excellent English as a lady speaker. Uh, but but basically I I I learned from me is the passion for the uh, when you look at the current PhD students or junior faculty, what are some of the common mistakes that you see uh, young scholars, young colleagues uh, make? Um, uh, uh, what are some of the things that you observe in their behavior that you think uh, you should give advice about not to do? What, what not to do? Uh, okay, okay, good, good question. Because I, I, I was a uh, PhD, what we call it here, called a PhD coordinator, okay, of the department. Uh, so I stepped out a couple of years ago, but I, I, I'm still supervising doctoral students. Okay, I, I think every doctor supervisor should have this sort of experience. So a, a student uh, comes to see you and then the student, after some sort of chit chat and say, uh, uh, John has just, has a paper acceptance, <laughs> a certain journal. I, I, I still haven't got any our paper acceptance. You, you, you see, that's of a comparison among doctoral students in the same cohort. I, I think this is natural. But, but usually, okay, what, what I can tell them is, or try to comfort them is, you, you know at your age, okay? If you join a career, after you have got your PhD, you have at least two to three decades down the line. So this is a marathon, not a sprint. So you have to look at the long-term, okay? And also don't compare yourself with other classmates. You just work on your own topic with passion. Of course, you have to work hard, yeah? And, and I, okay, I, I think personally, I have some sort of question about the tenure system in North America, okay? It is a spin. So you require a simple professor to publish, okay, in my school, maybe four to five on the, what we call the UTD 24, <laughs> within about six years. I think for most, most research schools in North America, I think they require somewhat similar, four to five at least. That's very difficult. Yeah, nowadays to publish four to five in those top journals within about six years. Yeah. True. So, and also, I would say that may not be very productive. Yeah. So I, I think there's something 
that we have to fix for simple. Uh, of course, I'm not in position to fix this sort of problem. But I, I encourage junior faculty members to look further ahead. Uh, so if they fail to get handled in one school, then they can go to another school and have another six years. Uh, so they should not follow the fashion. Uh, be, because sometimes students say, ah, okay, this, this seems to be a hot topic nowadays. Uh, so I go into it. I, I, I'll first ask, do you, do you like the topic? Do you have a passion for topic? Are you interested in it? If, if the answer is no, don't go into it. You do something that you are genuinely interested in. Yeah. And then you ask yourself, do I have the ability to do it? So you are talking about quality research. Can I write good English? Can I, good, can I write good stories? You were talking about that sort of quantitative. So am I good at number crunching or statistical modeling? So you ask yourself. So first, whether you have a passion. Second, whether you have the ability. If you have both, then you go for it. And don't compare yourself with others. And then you look long-term, not just six years. I mean, failing to get tenure is not the end of the world. You can find a job in a school. Yeah. And, uh, and also maybe, maybe they, they should not just focus on North American universities. I think in Europe universities are more liberal in terms of publication all that. Yeah. In, in, in that sense, they may not be as demanding as uh, most North American research universities. Then you have more room yeah, to explore your research interests, not just focusing on publish, public, publishing the enough number of papers to get tenure. Yeah. Um, Eric, I learned a lot from this interview, but uh, is there a question that I should have asked you, but haven't? What question? Is yeah. there a question I should have asked you, but I haven't? Um, have I left out anything that you want to contribute? Uh, okay, okay. If, you, if you're talking about uh, advice giving to junior faculty members or doctoral students, I usually uh, ask them to read some philosophy if time. Yeah, because I, I, my another major stream of research is philosophy. The application of philosophy to tackle some methodological issues. Um, so my first book in 1999, ML, Replication Theory Development. And uh, so as you mentioned, I published a, a book uh, 2017, the philosophy of management research. And I'm writing a book and a book, my second book, uh, explaining management phenomenon, a philosophical treatise. Okay, so I, I'm still working there, I'm behind schedule. Um, so I think my advice is if they read philosophy, they will, I think they have a, they'll be more rigorous in terms of the argument. Definitely they will improve the work of the argument and uh, it will be more logical. And, and, and not, not only that, I think some sort of knowledge of say philosophy of science will help to, to spot some sort of a, what an abnormal kind of phenomenon in our field. Now, yeah, so in fact, I, I have a paper forthcoming in journal management inquiry 
And uh, so I, I mean, quite, quite a number of us have read uh, Davis paper, that's interesting. So, mm. so quite a lot of uh, scholars in our field stress that you produce interesting um, arguments. Uh, so if you're finding interesting, then it would be better than they're not interesting or boring. So it seems that there's an interesting kind of movement or interestingness movement in our field. And so my paper argues that whether an argument or a theory or finding interesting has no value in science, which makes sense. I, 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 I just can't figure out why, why, why interestingness is something so important. In science, there's no value, which, which makes a lot of sense. Okay, so we talk about COVID-19, okay? So suppose someone had found a drug to cure COVID-19 100%. No one would care whether the drug is based on interesting <laughs> theory, right? Or whether the vaccine space or interesting field. No one, no one cares about that. What they care is how far the vaccine is effective, how far the drug is effective. Period. And as measurement scholar, I don't know, I don't know why we care so much about interestingness. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> so so basically, I think I think there's something very simple if someone has some lot of your science. Because interestingness is not a virtual or a scientific theory. Yeah. I, I mean, this paper is talking about counterintuitive. Where something counterintuitive has no, no value. But someone may call, oh, okay, you know, Einstein's theory. It's counterintuitive, right? Because we used to think that time is absolute, but it's theory shows that time is relative. Because space is relative. But Einstein is great not because his view is counterintuitive, because his view is true. <laughs> do, do you see it? Yeah. So, so I think some, sometimes people mix up the two. Einstein is a great scientist not because his view is counterintuitive. Of course, his view is counterintuitive. But because his theory is true, at least up to this moment, is true. Is better than Newton's theory. So, so that's why I think uh, as management scholars, researchers, I think we can learn a lot from reading philosophy. And, 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 in, in, and I, I can give, okay, a, a, a more recent or more practical example is uh, the paper I, I published a short toast when we go in uh, AML 2016. So, so we joined the debate of the ontological nature of entrepreneurial opportunities. Okay, because there are two camps. At, at that time, there were two camps. So one camp says that uh, entrepreneurial opportunities exist objectively, waiting to be discovered. Okay, the other camp says that opportunities don't exist objectively. They are created by entrepreneurs, okay? However, both camps are wrong. And then we propose the third perspective, saying that 
entrepreneurial opportunities exist objectively, but they are not in the actualized form, you see? So, so entrepreneurs have to actualize, okay, they put the opportunity and they to actualize it. So they don't exist in the actualized form. So, so you are not talking about discovering Apple, you talk about a seed which has a potential to go into Apple. I, I, I don't want to go to detail, otherwise it may take another hour. So those interest piece with uh, my article, my call for article in AML 2016 about the nature of entrepreneurial opportunities. So I think this topic is, is squarely in philosophy. It's about ontology, the nature of existence. So that's how philosophy can contribute to management research. Interesting point, uh, Eric, uh, for the sake of time, uh, I need to end this one, but uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your thoughts and for the advice you've given. Uh, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for inviting me.